Good morning, Village Church. I'm Matt, I'm one of the pastors here at the Village. Glad to be with you on this almost New Year's. So happy almost New Year's to all of you. I know, that's a mouthful, right? Happy almost New Year's to you as well. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's harder than Merry Christmas. Isn't it been great to be um, at church on Christmas Eve and to be at church again now on New Year's Eve, to be looking forward to Christmas um, at church on Sunday and to be looking forward to the new year um, at church on Sunday. So we're gra- grateful to be together here as we continue our series in the book of Luke. And if you're a guest with us, we've been starting the book of Luke uh, conveniently during Advent season. Uh, we're going to camp out here. Luke's in four sections, and we're going to take it over the next really year and a half, 18 months. And uh, here we are in the uh, end of the birth narrative, the Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 2 in a series we're calling Jesus is the One. Jesus is the One. And this morning we're going to talk about this idea that Jesus is the one worth waiting for. That Jesus is the one worth waiting for. And um, I got to admit, I, I don't like waiting for things. Do you? I do not like waiting for things, even good things. Like I do not like waiting in the in and out drive through I do not like waiting for, for good things. You know, I, I do not like waiting for things. I want things now. I tend to want things to happen yesterday. I don't like waiting for things. Um, this played itself out on Christmas. I, every year, buy like a family Christmas gift. And on Christmas Eve, during the day, not even during the night, I gave my family our family Christmas gift, the gift that I got for the family. And um, it was a gift that I thought everyone in the family would actually really want and enjoy. But, um, and, and so I brought it out before all the family would come over because I thought there was a perfect place in the house that I thought it would go. And the picture, I, I didn't bring it because I don't want you to judge me. And if, if you know me, I really don't actually even care. But, 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 but the pictures of my family and all of our 4th of July garb, the most like patriotic picture we have as a family, we've ever had as a family, out in Idaho. And it's 36 inches long by 24 inches high. It's giant. And if you've been in our house, you know there's this place where you walk in toward the kitchen and there's a really nice portrait of our family. And I just thought it would go right there. And my whole family, it wasn't just Dean. Dean was like, ah, you know, maybe there's another spot. And my kids were like, Dad, no. Dad, no. Like, you can't put that huge thing, you know. And so um, it ended up being actually not a family Christmas gift. It's just a me Christmas gift. And so I got myself a Christmas gift. It's actually up in my home office now. And I really enjoy it, right? And I look at it every day, and I'm so grateful. It's my new favorite picture of my family. I don't like waiting for things. I think there's this Christmas Eve tradition where the kids get one gift at Christmas Eve. And honestly, I think it's not always for the kids. It's for the parents. Like, it's not just because the kids are complaining or they want a gift or they're so eager. I think there's parents like me that are just like, just have it already. You know, like, I just want to give it to them. I, I don't like waiting for things. But I probably should get better at waiting for things because waiting for things actually has some really tangible benefits. Like when we wait for things, we tend to appreciate them more, right? If you have to wait for something, you tend to appreciate it more. Or if you have to wait for something, you tend to be more grateful for it when you, when you get it, when you have it. Or if you wait for something, it makes you grow in patience, and patience surely is a virtue. And if you wait for something, it actually builds resilience. Like if you have to wait for something that you really want, then it builds resilience and perseverance. And lastly, I think, it, maybe not lastly, there's so many things, but for this morning, lastly, like, it, it, bre- it brings clarity. When you have to wait for something, it's sometimes over time, you can see something after the waiting that you couldn't have seen if you just sort of got it on impulse, you know, right away. And, and I thought to myself this week, maybe these are some of the reasons why God seems so content to allow his people to wait for so many things. Maybe there are so many more reasons that, that waiting is a good thing, but these are just some of them. But maybe these are some of the reasons 
why God is so content to allow his people to wait for so many things, to allow his people to wait so long for his actual coming that we just celebrated at Christmas. Right? God was content for his people to wait a few thousand years from when the prophets first started talking about the coming of the Messiah until the time Jesus actually came. The fullness of time was a long time. God was content to allow his people to wait in 400 years of silence from the prophets. 400 years, that's a long time. It's over twice as long as our country has even existed. And God was content to allow his people to be in silence from the prophets for 400 years before the coming of Jesus. God just seems to be content to allow his people to wait. And God seems to have been content to allow us, his people, to wait, well, around 2,000 years (laughs) so far for the second coming of Jesus. And I just want to say, God's people have always been a waiting people, and that is apparently by design. I don't like waiting, but I'm one of God's people. And God's people have always been a waiting people, and apparently that is by design from God. And so I just thought, well, if we're going to be a waiting people, what kinds of people should we be? If we're going to be waiting for the second coming of Jesus— If we're going to be waiting between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, if we're going to be waiting between the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus, what kind of people should we be as we wait? And the good news is, over the next 18 months as we go through the Gospel of Luke, that Luke is actually going to share a number of Jesus' parables with us that are all about this, all about how we should be living our lives, how we should be stewarding our lives between the time that Jesus has already come and the time that Jesus comes again. And Luke doesn't actually waste any time getting to the parables. Luke actually gives us some examples just up front as as early as chapter 2 in his narrative about Jesus, what kinds of people the followers of Jesus should be. And he gives us these examples um, of Simeon and Anna, and he gives us an example of Jesus himself. And so this morning what we're going to do, kind of spoiler alert, we're just going to walk through what kind of men— should we be as men who are God's men as we wait for the coming of Jesus? What kind of women should we be as we wait for the coming of Jesus? And I'm going to talk to all of you this morning specifically about what kind of young people, what kind of youth should we be as we wait for the coming of Jesus? And we're going to pick it up in verse 22, where it says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This would have been 40 days after the birth of Jesus. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of troll doves and two young pigeons. There's a lot of details we don't have time to go into this morning on this passage. It reminds us of just how poor Mary and Joseph were with the sacrifices. Also shows us just how devout they were. And then it changes gears and it makes us focus on this man named Simeon. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What an an awesome description of a man. So Simeon's example is going to help us answer this first question. What kind of men should we be as we wait for Jesus? What kind of men should we be as we wait for Jesus? I want to say up front, man, I'm so glad to be among you. There's so many good and godly men and strong men in this church, strong in faith primarily, and... I'm so glad to be numbered among you. I want to mention a few things that are here in this passage about Simeon that I think relate to us as God's men here in this church. And the first one is this, that God's men wait as righteous men. God's men should wait as righteous men. It says, and he was righteous 
That word righteous literally means keeping the commandments of God. Keeping the commandments of God. And I want to say that as I look at Christian men in our culture today, I can see one of two tendencies. There are two tendencies that Christian, professing Christian men can tend to have, and that's to sort of slide into or to drift toward one of two things. To drift into legalism or to drift into lethargy. To drift into self-righteousness, I can do this on my own, or to drift into unrighteousness, like, well, it doesn't really matter how I live. I'm professing that I believe Jesus has already lived and died for me, and so the way that I live actually doesn't matter that much. It's not that important. And Simeon is reminding us, no, 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 that's actually very important. And then instead of drifting into legalism, believing like I can attain my righteousness on my own, or drifting into lethargy or license, that I can just do whatever I want, and well, God's pretty much okay with it. Simeon is a great example of a man who was, it says, righteous. He was actually obeying the commandments of God. He was acting righteously. He was living righteously. And man, I just want to say, this is an example for us. These are the kinds of men that we ought to be. Men that are living righteously and acting righteously, not just knowing that Jesus already lived for us, the righteous life that we could never live, and he did, rejoicing in that. And because of that, that we would live out a life that is righteous before God, that we would act rightly, not perfectly, but righteously before God and before the people around us, our family, our church family, our neighbors. See, there's this tension between there's a self-righteousness on one side and there's a unrighteousness on the other side. And in the middle is, is, is the Christ righteousness that we believe we have because Jesus lived a sinless life for us. And if you're not yet a Christian, that's what Christians believe. That's why Jesus is such a big deal, that he lived the life we could never live, a sinless life before God that none of us could ever live. We could never attain our righteousness on our own, and we're always bent toward unrighteousness, but Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life on our behalf. And because of that, as men, we should have a desire to live a righteous life in front of the people around us, namely in front of God, firstly. But there's more to us as men who are waiting. The second thing we see this morning is that the men, um, God's men should wait as devoted men, as righteous men and as devoted men. It was says that this man was righteous and he was devout. The word devout means circumspect. It means taking hold of something well. That Simeon was a man that had faith and he took a hold of that faith and he was circumspect about his faith. He was a devout man. Simeon was serious men. He was serious about his faith. He was serious about his walk with God. He was circumspect about these things. He was serious about living it out. That's why he was called a righteous man. And again, I want to say that as I look at the landscape and as I read statistics from Pew Research or Barna or whoever you want to read them from, you can find them if you Google them when you go home today. And it will tell you that some of the statistics about professing Christian men are maybe not the same but similar in a number of areas to men that are not professing Christians. And I'm not saying in good things. I'm saying in things that God says that we should be avoiding and not be involved in. Sinful things, harmful things, unjust things, unrighteous things. And there can be a tendency in this culture, in our culture, that says, well, we can just do whatever we want, whenever we want, that the men are not devout. Christian men, professing Christian men, could even not take their faith seriously. They have more of a superficial faith than a serious faith. And that's not for the men in this church. And that's not for God's men in any church, in his church, capital C church. God wants his men to be serious about the things that they believe, about the things that Jesus has told them, about the things that Jesus has told them to tell other people, about making disciples. 
to that end, this year, um, men, you've, you received the email, and if you were at the men's partner briefing, you got it. Um, but the men of this church are going to be in men's accountability groups this year. The pastors of this church have decided that we want our men to be in a men's accountability group. One, two, three, maybe up to four men. Some of you men have already made your groups. If you haven't yet made a group or gotten in a group, see your community leader, see myself, Pastor David, one of the pastors. We want every men, every man in this church to be in a men's accountability group, to have a weekly connect some way with, a, with another man in this church to talk about their walk with God and their relationship with God. And to that end, we made some prayer journals for the men and journals that you can actually walk through the scripture reading program that we have as a church. So our scripture reading plan is in here now for the men. And you can read this um, weekly kind of, uh, well, week at a glance, we're calling it. And you can see where you're reading in scripture. It gives you a place to say, yes, I, I set my accountability meeting this week. Yes, I prayed for the village church. Yes, I prayed for an unbeliever. It gives you room to journal some of your thoughts about the reading plan. Because men, we want the men at the Village Church to be more, even more serious, more devout. We want devout men at the Village Church, amen? We want devout men at the Village Church, amen? Amen, there we go, right? We wanna be devout men, and so to this end, we're trying to put tools in the hands of our men to help make that a reality, more of a reality. The men of this church are devout men, and I love being around the men in this church, and we have room to grow in this, and we will. So there's even more. God's men should wait on, on, on uh, Jesus coming as hopeful men. The God's men should be waiting also as hopeful men. It says of Simeon that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word waiting literally means to look for. And what it means is that Simeon was looking for the things that God was doing. Simeon was looking back at the things that God had already done. Simeon was looking at, he had eyes for things that God was currently doing. And he was trying to see what God was going to be doing in the future based on what he said he would do, he is doing, and what he would do. Simeon was looking for that. He was a hopeful man. He was looking at the things that God had done, the hope that God had brought. And there can be a tendency, I think, for men in this day and age to feel kind of hopeless sometimes. And and we live in a culture that is increasingly, for whatever reasons, a bit hostile toward men. And every kind of masculinity is supposedly now toxic masculinity. And, and being a man is sort of being challenged today. And we live in a culture that's actually trying to make men into something they never were and that God never intended them to be. We should be hopeful men. It, it, it could be hopeless sometimes as a man to look at the things that are happening in culture and in the world and all the things that seem to be stacked against the men in our culture and to get a little hopeless. And if you're a man and you watch the news too often, this is exacerbated, Right? You watch the news to be a man and to understand what's happening in the world, to lead and guide your family and, and to help understand the things that are happening so you can be a good leader. But if you watch it too much and you get too drawn in, it's just, it's all negative. It's all, it's hopelessness. And God's men are not to be dragged into that kind of hopelessness. Be men that are pessimistic and hard and cold. But God wants his men to be hopeful men, looking for the things that he has done, looking for the things that he is doing, and trusting him for the things that he will do based on what he's already done and based on what he's doing, to have eyes to see the good things that God has done and is doing, to be hopeful as we look at our life and to live with a sense of hope and to lead. I want to lead my family with a sense of hope. And I want to help to lead this church family with a sense of hope because God's men should be waiting as hopeful men. But there's more. We believe, I believe this passage shows us God's men should be waiting as spirit-led men. That God's men should be waiting as men who are led by the Spirit of God. It said, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We know now that the Holy Spirit dwells within us as God's people. 
after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 26 says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon is probably an older man, and God has given him this wonderful opportunity. God's told him, I know you're older, but you're not going to die until you see the coming of the Messiah. What an incredible opportunity. Is that amazing? It's like, yeah, you're going to die, but not before you see the Messiah come. It's incredible what God revealed to him. And we're not told exactly how this was revealed to Simeon, how he was led by the Spirit in this way. But, but in the Gospel of Luke, even so far, only two chapters in, Luke emphasizes the Holy Spirit a lot in his book. Only two chapters in, Luke has already shown us four ways that we can be led by God's Spirit as God's people. And we're talking about as God's men right now. Gals, we're almost to you in just a moment. But as God's men, we're saying we can be led by, by the word of God. If you look at all of the songs, Zacharias, Mary, if you look at all the things that were said in the scripture, in the Christmas account, it's saturated with scripture. They knew their Bible. God was speaking to them, leading them through scripture. Prayer. These were devout people. They had gone to the hours of prayer. They were devoted to God in prayer. We see that as Zechariah is in the temple, they're outside praying. God speaks to his people. He leads them through prayer. God actually speaks to and leads his people through other believers, other like-minded believers. We see this when, when Elizabeth talks to Mary and tells her what's happening and what happened in her womb with John. There's this interaction. There's this mutual encouragement. God speaks to us through his people. And God also speaks to us apparently through visions. He spoke to uh, Zechariah that way in the temple. Um, maybe it's been a little while since God's given you a vision. I don't know. But it probably hasn't been that long since you opened your Bible with an openness as God's man to what God would say to you through Scripture. It probably hasn't been that long since you sat down to pray as a man. I hope it hasn't been that long. Where you sat down with an openness to say, God, speak to me, lead me, guide me, lead my family. Tell, tell me what you want me to do as I pray. probably hasn't been that long since, I hope it hasn't been that long since you've sat down in a community group or with another man and said, here's what's going on in my life. I did that with one of my lifelong friends last night. Here's what's going on in my life. What do you see? What, 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 how do you want to speak into this? And trust that maybe God would speak to me through one of his people who happens to be one of my best friends in life. The vision's on God. I can't, I can't. That's, that's for him. That was a church joke, but none of you are laughing. So, all right. Anyway. Again, we don't know um, how exactly God spoke to Simeon, but we do know that Simeon was living with the kind of posture where he was open to be led by the Holy Spirit. God's men live in this kind of posture. God's men wait this way. They wait on the Lord by waiting on him by his Holy Spirit. And there can be a tendency in our culture to have men that are not spirit-led, they're self-led. We're just gonna lead out of our own gifting, our own ability, our own ingenuity, right? Our own thoughts, our own abilities, giftings, talents. God says no. Be led by my spirit. That's how God's men wait. Again, scripture, prayer, believers. And I want to just point something out again. In the men's prayer journal that, that we're giving you as men who are partners here at the Village Church, this is, this is, it's all about the scripture reading plan. It's all about prayer. There's two boxes to check in terms of who you and how you're praying for. And it's all about meeting with other men to talk about it. It's scripture, prayer, and believers. We're trying to set the men up in our church to be men who are hearing from God, who open to be led by his spirit. Amen? So this is the way God's men are. And there's one more thing as we wait as God's men. And I think we see it in verses 27 to 32. It says, And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the, parent, and when the, the parents brought him 
brought in the child to Jesus to do for him according to the custom of law. He took him in his arms and he blessed God and said, and I got to tell you, I don't know why, but I'm always seeing like the Lion King, you know, like it says he took him in his arms. And I told my family I was going to do the, like the, but I, I don't actually know what the words are. So it's just like, whatever that is, like, like, I don't know if Simeon did this, like here he is, or it says he held him in his arms. Maybe he like did one of these. Um, but, but then, but then Simeon said, so I don't know if that counts as our bet or not, but like, I, I mean, I did the melody, not the words, but, but, but he says, then he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. God had told him, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And here, lastly, I think we see that the God's men should be waiting as missional men. The God's men should be waiting as missional men. There can be a tendency as men to come up with sort of our own mission, our own agenda, build our own kingdom, go like, what do I need to do for myself, for my family? What do I need to get in order? How do I need to build this out? How do we need to grow this? And it's all sort of about us and our kind of little mission or our little kingdom. And God's men are not like that. God's men steward all the things in their life for God's greater purposes and for God's greater mission to build his kingdom for his mission. And there's really two things here. There's in the mission of God, there's the church and there's the world. There's the God's people and there's the not yet God's people. This is like the discipleship and evangelism enigma in the church. And it's not an enigma, it's a both and. In the church, we disciple one another, men's prayer journal. And we evangelize people. We share Christ with people that are not yet Christians. That's evangelism. In your prayer journal, men, there will be a box that's there that says, I prayed for an unbeliever this week. And this year, as we go through the Gospel of Luke that is talking largely about the, the least, the last, and the lost, as a church, we're going to be emphasizing outreach and evangelism and talking about this more because God wants us to share these things with the people around us, just like they did in the Christmas story. And men, we're supposed to lead the way in that. At the end of the day, there's a few things here, but ultimately, God's men should be men who wait as as righteous men, to point to Jesus, the righteous man, right? And the men in this church, they should, they should wait as, as devoted men to point to Jesus, right? The devoted God-man. Right? And as men, we should live as hopeful men to point to Jesus, like the, the one who brought hope and a living hope through this resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That ultimately, we live as spirit-led men to point to Jesus, the one who was anointed by God's spirit, who left the spirit for us, the, the, the man Christ Jesus. And ultimately we live as missional men to point to Jesus, the God man who has the ultimate mission. All these things are to point other people to him. So ultimately God's men are called to be men who are pointing to Jesus in every way as we're waiting for Jesus. So men, are we pointing to Jesus in these ways as we are waiting for Jesus? If we're gonna be awaiting people, if we're going to be men who are waiting, these are the kind of men we ought to be. And again, I'm so thankful that the Village Church is filled with these kind of men. What kind of impact do these kind of men have on the people around them? Verses 33 to 35, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall of rising of many in Israel. For a sign that's opposed, the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There's a lot here, but for this morning, when God's men are living as righteous, devout, hopeful, spirit-led, missional kinds of men, they can see 
and discern what God is doing around them. And they can speak into it and they can bless other people. And this is what they do here. They speak into this and they bless Mary and Joseph. Okay, so these are the kinds of men we should be as we wait for the coming of Jesus. But what kind of women should we be as we wait for Jesus? Which sounds a little strange for me to say, but I just said it. What kind of women should we be (laughs) as we wait for Jesus? Gals, um, this starts in verse 36. Look at it with me. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from the time she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Some people think it was 84 years as a widow, depending on how it's all translated. She's old. She's lived a long time, and she's lived a long time as a widow. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So what kind of women should God's women be as they wait for Jesus? I think the first thing we see is God's women should wait as worshipful women. About Simeon, it says that he was righteous and devoted. About Anna, it says that she was worshiping. She was a worshipful woman. She was advanced in years. She was in the temple. She did not depart from the temple. She was worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And, and, and from what I know, just from life experience, that it can be easy for God's women to worry while they wait for Jesus, maybe instead of worship as they wait for Jesus. And there can be some understandable reasons for this. There are a lot of things that women are keen to. There are a lot of things that women discern. There are a lot of things that women feel. We call it women's intuition. It's a gift from God. And, and women tend to feel and discern so many things for their own life, for the life of the people that they love, for their families, for the people around them. And that can bring a sense of worry sometimes because there are so many things that are coming against all of those things. Anna had a lot to worry about. In her culture, if you weren't married in that culture, it was really, really, really difficult, especially as an older woman. And she had been a widow for a long time, taking care of herself for, well, maybe up to 80 years, but certainly up to 84 years old. She was advanced in years, and she did not depart from the temple. And she had a lot potentially to worry about in her culture, in her setting. But worry can be kind of an evidence that we're more self-focused. And as good as it might might seem others-focused, instead of really being Jesus-focused, right? Looking at the things that are happening around us and just being worshipful, worshiping Jesus for who he is, worshiping Jesus for what he's done, staying in a worshipful posture so we crowd out the worry. God wants his women to wait as worshipful women, not, not worrying women. And actually, Luke records a story in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 10, and I know you gals are familiar with the story of Mary and Martha. And we're gonna get to it eventually. <laughs> But for this morning, enough to be said that, that this is there. And again, in a similar way, um, this is just one of the journals, but there's a woman's prayer journal that the women of our church are, many of the women in our church are engaging as well this year. And, and again, um, we're offering this as an opportunity to, to make time to just to worship, to sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary, you know, to open up the journal and to write down, you know, some of the prayers for your friends, your family, your personal you know, life, and then to see God answer those prayers and to trust God that he's going to answer, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to worship instead of worry about your life, about your family's life, about the life of this church, about the things that are happening in the world. There's so many things to worry about. God wants his women to wait 
as worshipful women. And there are a couple of other really incredible things that come out of, beautiful things that come out of waiting as a worshipful woman. And we find the next one where I think we find that God's women should wait as thankful women. I think this passage shows us in Anna's example that God's women should be like Anna. They should wait as thankful women. It says, in coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. The, the she began to give thanks to God is actually said and worded in a way that, that gives us the impression that this is Anna's normal practice. This is Anna's normal practice. This is what she does. She's always worshiping, and so she's looking Godward. And as she looks Godward, she sees all kinds of things to be thankful for. And so in that moment when she sees Jesus, her first response, the immediate thing that comes out is thankfulness and gratitude toward God. That she sees the things that she should be thankful for, even in the midst of a very chaotic world. And let me just tell you, the world that Anna lived in was no less chaotic than yours and mine. If you're a woman in this church and you're living in this world and you sense the chaos around you or, or you sense there's so much chaos and it's coming against my family, like, yes, Anna lived in this kind of world, right? The, the Pax Romana was, was not, didn't have that much peace in it for God's people in Jerusalem. Like, things were hard. There were a lot of things to worry about. I mean, here's Anna focusing things on the things that she's thankful for. It's pretty amazing. It can be easy to feel unsatisfied or unthankful as we wait for Jesus. And again, maybe for some understandable reasons, again, there's so many things that women discern and they feel. So many good things that the women in this church want for their life and for the lives of their friends and for the lives of their family and for this church family. It can be easy to focus on the things that are wrong and not look at the things that we have to be thankful for and point ourselves there. And I believe this is what God wants for his women. But being a worshipful woman actually leads to another great and I think beautiful attribute. And I think it's that God, God's women should wait as hopeful women. Just like God's men wait as hopeful men, God's women wait as hopeful women. It says that she began to give thanks to, to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That Anna was a woman who was hopeful, that despite all of the throngs of people that were filling Jerusalem at this time or had filled Jerusalem and then had, had gone, Despite the occupation from the Roman Empire, despite all the zealots, despite all the conflict, despite all the uprisings and the downrising, despite all of the political ups and downs, despite all the economic challenges, that Anna was waiting as a hopeful woman. I think it can be easy for God's women to, to get us to kind of feel a sense of, of a lack of hope as they wait. And again, for these understandable reasons, women want so many good things for those around them, their givers, their servants. But a lack of hope can sometimes be an evidence of a lack of faith in what we see God doing and the way we see God doing it and the timing in which God seems to prefer to do it. And so God's women are hopeful women that are filled with faith. This is the way that he wants his women to be waiting. And then lastly, I think there's, a, um, there's one more that I think is, is really beautiful as well. And it's that God's women should wait as missional women. Like men should wait as missional men. God's women should wait as missional women. It says, in coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him to, of him to all, keyword all, who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. To all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. There were people that were waiting for the redemption of Israel, um, redemption of Jerusalem rather, that, um, that were part of God's people. They were Jewish there were some of them that were God-fears. They were not Jewish, but they would come to that place. 
and they were curious about the things of God. And gals, I just want to say, um, you have a very unique opportunity in this. And I think women connect with each other in, in, in this way, I think, particularly well. There are a lot of women in our culture that are professing Christians. They just might not be Christians. Like they're professing to have faith in Christ, but maybe they don't yet. They know something about it because of their upbringing. Women can tend to be more naturally spiritual than men can be. And so they have this sense of what's going on with Jesus, but they don't know completely what's going on with Jesus. Actually, two weeks ago, I, I, I chatted with a gal here in our church on a Sunday morning who was brought by another gal in our church. And this is her story. She grew up in the church in this sort of particular way. And then she's talking with one of the village partners in our church who's a neighbor. And the idea is sort of like, yeah, I, I grew up around these things, but I didn't really understand it this way. Like, I, I, I'm not sure, am I, like, am I, the idea was kind of like, am I a Christian yet? Right? There are a lot of women that are, that are in this place, a lot of men in this place, but women seem to have a particular way of meeting up with each other, like at a park day or getting invited to, I don't know, there's this thing called bunko, I guess, that like you, you do cards and you, no? Okay, anyway, so, so, so never been, but um, never really want to go, actually, but, but, no, like, but I think it's great. I think it's just bunko, just boom, 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 go, dice, boom, dice, dice, no cards, yeah, dice. See, I haven't been, no dice. I mean, no cards, it's dice. So, but what I'm saying is there are all these opportunities to invite in people for all who were waiting. And God's women are also missional women. It's a great opportunity. You might say, well, what kind of impact or effect do these kind of women have on those around them? And there's actually nothing explicit in this text about this, but there's something implicit, I think, in this whole narrative. I mean, you look at Elizabeth, you look at Mary. Like God's women are so vital. I mean, <laughs> Mary kind of birthed Jesus, right? It's pretty important. They're so vital to the life of God's people and to the things that God is doing. I want to just kind of step back and say most of the impact may actually happen in the very ordinary circumstances of life. This is a pretty extraordinary moment. And you might be thinking like, yeah, I'd love to be God's man or God's woman in this kind of scenario. But like, this looks pretty ordinary, extraordinary. But this happens in the ordinary moments. It says in verses 39 to 40, when they had performed everything according to the law of Moses, they returned to Galilee, their own town, to Nazareth. They, they went back to a very like backwoods, small kind of town that they lived in, very rural people. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. There's this extraordinary moment in the temple in Jerusalem, but there were more ordinary moments in a small town called Nazareth where God was forming and shaping his people, his men, his women, Mary and Joseph and their family in this way, which leaves us to the one final question this morning as we end our time. What kind of youth should we be as we wait for Jesus? In verse 41, it says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And what this shows us is that Mary and Joseph were actually um, very devoted people. They went up year after year. Only Joseph had to go, but Mary and Joseph would go up. They went up year after year to the feast of the Passover, both of them. They lived out their lives in a godly way. They were becoming God's man, God's women in, in more profound ways. They were emulating perhaps what they had seen in Simeon and Anna. And Jesus had good parents, and it had an obvious impact on his family, including his life. Jesus was the God man, fully God and fully man. Here we get a picture of Jesus when he was 12. So not yet a teenager, but almost. And in his culture, pretty much. Verse 43, and when the feast had ended, they were returning, to, and the boy stayed, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, 
they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. If you're a parent, you know what this is like, right? We talked about over Christmas, you know, my brother-in-law and my sister like lost Mandy when she was two year old in, Jeru- in, in Disneyland, in Toontown. Like it was, it wasn't Jerusalem. It must, might as well have been. But all I know is like, I, I, ran to the, I ran to the entrance of Two-Town, you know, and I was having very actually bad unchristian thoughts, you know, about like if someone had my child, you know, what would happen? And so like, it was like running, it was such a, it was only like 30 seconds, but it seemed like 30 minutes, right? Like you understand? This has been three days for them. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so what I want to say to you, um, youth, is, is, is this, and I know some of you are throughout here, but you tend to sit here. That God's youth should wait as a zealous youth. That if you're a young person, if you're a, a junior high student, a high school student, I would say college student, if you're a young person and you have faith in Christ, you should be waiting with a lot of zeal, a lot of kind of grit, gusto, like a lot of passion. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. It can be so easy for young people to be so passionate about so many things. And the world is giving you images every second. It's giving you images every moment. It's giving you videos and pictures and celebrities and influencers are talking to you about the things that you should be passionate about. And what you ought to be passionate about actually is you should be passionate about Jesus and his word and his people and his mission and the things that he has for you. Jesus was so zealous for the things of God that he actually missed when his parents left. Like his parents left and he was still there. This would be like you guys going up to Hume Lake and you being at Hume Lake this summer for the whole week and then the bus leaves and like you're not on it. So like you get home and you're not here and then after Tommy's fired, we call Hume Lake. <laughs> after Tommy's fired, we, we, we call Hume Lake and we're like, hey, so-and-so is still up there. And, and, and you're like, no, 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 I didn't just ditch the bus. I stayed here because all I want to do is like be in God's presence. I want to go to Bible study and worship every day. It's, it's not because I want to go to the snack and scam again. It's not because I want to do the fun activities. It's like, I just want to sit and worship God for a whole nother week. And I bet you your parents would say, great. I don't know, another 800 bucks, no big deal. Just, just go. Like, it's fine. If you want to wait with Jesus, or it would be like if you came to church this morning, and here you are, and you're like, I'm having such a great time worshiping Jesus. Your parents leave, and you just decide, I'm just going to stay at church. So I'm going to stay at church with my leaders, and I'm just going to study the Bible three days until, like, let's say Wednesday, when there's youth group on Wednesday night. And it's going to be this crescendo on Wednesday night, because I just want to worship God for three days long with no interruptions, right? This is, this is in a sense, what's happening to Jesus. Jesus had a zeal for God. As a 12-year-old, he's discovering more and more like about who he is and God's call in his life. And he, you know, he's fully God, fully man. He's being revealed to these, these things are being revealed to him and he's getting it every time, perfectly every time. I don't want to be careful how I talk about Jesus and his humanity and his deity, but, but this, is, this is happening to Jesus. He's growing in these ways. And I want to tell you guys that revival, revival happens when young people get zealous for the things of God. And there are some, you guys are awesome. Our youth are awesome in this church. And you guys have so many giftings and abilities and God's given you great families and you can have zeal for God. And we're praying, the men of this church pray every Thursday morning. And when the men pray every Thursday morning, every Thursday they pray for all of you, every one of you. We pray for all of you that you will have got a, a relationship with Christ that's zealous and passionate. So we pray for the youth of this church every Thursday morning as we pray as men. And we have a picture of us actually what this looks like in this church. And I don't know if you know this, but you guys, some of you guys know Tim Haney, one of the coolest guys in our church back here. And um, Tim Haney, 
was actually involved in one of the biggest revivals our country's ever seen. I watched the Jesus Revolution this Christmas break. I did it by myself as my family was upstairs, you know, wrapping gifts. We never went to see it in a theater. But it's a story of the Jesus movement that happened in Costa Mesa and spread all over our country. And Tim was telling me a story at Men's Advance, and Tim was at the concert in Laguna where that all stuff all happened. Tim is on the cover of a book of this guy, Lonnie Frisbee, who was baptizing all these people during that time. Like, Tim was knee-deep in all this stuff. If you guys want to hear about what revival's like and, and what it's like when young people get a passion for Jesus, you should go talk to Tim. He lived that out. He knows what that's about. Like, we have, like, literally, like, an iconic dude in our church who... Look, look at him. Look at him. He's... Kind of looks like Santa Claus, too. It's awesome. Anyway, all right, I got to move on. We're, we're, I'm running out of time. There's more. There's two other things. There's so much more I could say there. And, and we love you guys. We want you to be so zealous for God. Secondly, God's youth should wait as obedient youth. And all the parents said? Amen. Oh, yeah. God's youth should wait as obedient youth. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a parent and I'm looking at my son. I'm not just saying that as I'm obedient. I'm, I'm just saying I'm, I'm looking at everybody. Um, but, but it's because the Bible says it, right? So look, 48, 49. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? <laughs> Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, what I know about young people is that they're smarter than we think they are. And you're probably going, this doesn't sound like Jesus obeyed his parents. It sounds like Jesus did not obey his parents. It sounds like he knew they were leaving and uh, he stayed in Jerusalem anyway. And so what's up with that? And I would say um, this guy named R. Kent Hughes says it, I think, best and most succinctly. The point is this. Um, Jesus was capable of unknowingly causing his parents distress. But as a sinless being, as our sinless savior, right, he was incapable of knowingly doing it. That Jesus was so caught up in the things that were happening in the temple. He was learning so many things. He was contributing so many things. His zeal for God really overtook him. So it'd be like, if that happened to you at Hume Lake and you stayed on the bus, like, I would not be angry. I would be like, that's awesome. Just stay at Hume Lake and be with Jesus. As a parent, I'd be like, great, go for it, right? Um, there'd be a little distress, probably. But, um, but this is where Jesus is at. He's not disobedient to his parents. Did he unknowingly cause them some distress? Apparently so. Jesus was obedient to his parents, but he was so caught up in wanting to be obedient to his heavenly father that he unknowingly caused some distress to his earthly father and mother. Philippians 2 tells us that he didn't continually avail himself to all of his godly attributes. So it's not like Jesus like knew, like just accessed all the knowledge he, there is to access all the time. Lastly, God's youth should wait as submissive youth. And that's even better than obedient, isn't it? It's more exciting than obedient, right? A submissive? That was a joke. You guys are supposed to laugh. All right, 50 to 51. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And I just got to tell you guys as youth that one of the greatest ways that you could be an example to the people around you of who Jesus is is by being humbly obedient and sometimes even submissive to your parents. I know you guys want to be obedient to your parents. You have good parents. I know your parents. You have good parents. And you have good reason to want to be obedient to them. And, um, and I know for my kids, they want to be obedient to, to, to mom and I. Um, 
being submissive is, 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 is part of being obedient, but it's sort of one step further. It's, um, it's willing to do something, um, you know, when, when maybe, um, well, maybe it's, it's, it's just willing to do whatever your parents say for whatever reason. And Jesus was obedient to the point of being submissive even to his parents and saying, yeah, I was supposed to be about my father's business here in the temple, but you're my parents. And so Jesus was perfectly obedient and submissive to his parents. And we live in a culture that most teenagers are not like that. Matter of fact, um, Timothy tell, Paul told Timothy that, that in the end, in the last days, that people would be disrespectful and disobedient to their parents. And would actually be one sign that we're getting closer to the end days, last days. And it seems like a lot of young people are this way today. They're disrespectful and they're disobedient to their parents. And one of the main ways you guys can show other people who Jesus is is by being zealous and obedient and even submissive to your parents and trusting God to use that, okay? All right. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. Jesus was growing in all these ways. And the last thing I want to tell you guys is there's a difference between growing and growing up. Like all of you guys are growing up. Like my son is almost taller than me, right? And so it's like, I'm kidding. He's, my son is taller than me now. <laughs> Everyone's taller than me. You know what I mean? So, but, but so like, but you guys are all growing up, but there's a difference between growing and growing up. And all of you are growing up, like, but, but God wants you to be growing, growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, like growing in your faith, growing in all these ways. And we're excited to see you guys do that. All right, I'm gonna invite Reagan up, and I just wanna say, um, whether we're a man, whether we're a woman, whether we're a youth, um, there are gospel implications for all of us in all of this. And as we wrap up, I just wanna draw our attention to 2 Peter chapter 3, where it says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He seems to take his time. He seems to allow us to wait. The Lord is not slow, though, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why is God waiting? Why is Jesus waiting so long to return? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If you're with us this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want to tell you, Jesus is not waiting just because he wants to transform his people more in the image of his son, which the Bible says. He wants Christians to look more like Jesus. And if you know some Christians and you're not a Christian, you know that Christians need to look a little bit more like Jesus, right? Because the Christians that you know are not perfect, and sometimes they don't act like Christians. And that's unfortunate, but Christians aren't perfect. We are forgiven by God's grace. Thank God we're forgiven in Christ. And so can you be forgiven for your sin in Christ? But one of the reasons that Jesus is not your return, apparently the main one is that he's not willing that people should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're not yet a Christian, he wants you to be in relationship with him. And he doesn't want you to perish. It goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Like it's gonna come quick. Like Jesus is going to return. Jesus came once and he's gonna come again. And it's going to happen like that. And the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus is going to come and, and take care of all the wrongs. Things are going to melt away and he's going to make something new. This is what we're looking forward to. That's the second coming, the second advent of Jesus. And Peter goes on to say, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since all of this is going to be dissolved, since all the wrongs and all the sin that we create is going to be dissolved. What sort of people ought we to be? Well, he tells us, in lives of holiness and godliness, devout, righteous, worshipful, hopeful, missional people, waiting for and hastening 
the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which, and I'll put the word perfect righteousness dwells. As we seek to live righteous lives, we look forward to a day where we're in a place of perfect righteousness with the perfectly righteous one. And this is the good news, that Jesus is the one worth waiting for. Jesus was the one worth waiting for for his people. Jesus is the one worth waiting for. Jesus is the only one worth waiting for. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you know how much we do want to wait well as your men, as your women, as your youth. And I thank you for the really clear picture we get of this in the life of Simeon and Anna and from yourself, Jesus, as a 12-year-old. At at age 12, you're teaching us things. You teach us all things. And so, Lord, would you help us to wait well? We, I know there's so many hopes that we have for our lives and for our families, for the life of this church family. It might seem sometimes like here we are at the beginning of another year and some things are just the same and we want things to change or progress. We're waiting for so many good things. Lord, would you help us to wait on you? Would you help us to believe that you are the one worth waiting for? Would you help us to believe that the things that you want for us are worth waiting for and they're better than things, some of the things we may want for ourselves and that your timing is worth the wait? Ultimately, would you help us to believe that it's worth waiting for however long it takes until you return because Jesus, when you return, will be with you forever, the perfectly righteous one. So Lord, as we wait, we wait with you. We love you, Jesus.